Sips talks to inspirational and influential people to find out about their drinking journeys. Hosted by me, Emily Cyphers, founder of Sober and Social. I will talk to guests at all stages of their journey, offering different insights and perspectives from struggles to successes. Sober Sips gives you story and substance. Before we head into the episode, I wanted to tell you about Kalenio, one of my favourite drinks brands. Kalenio are a non-alcoholic spirits brand on a mission to bring joy to not drinking. Flavoured by the sun-drenched fruits of Colombia, their spirits offer a deliciously versatile alcohol-free alternative. Thanks Kalenio for sponsoring the episode. This week, I speak to Teva O'Halloran, author, businesswoman and mother. We discuss her alcohol and drug addictions, blackout drinking and some home truths about alcohol and mental health. Let's dive in. Hello Tava, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Um, It's 8pm where you are. That's right, in sunny Sydney. Yeah, sunny Sydney. Um, I can't say the same about non-sunny London. As you probably know. I don't think anyone ever can. Yeah, it's not a word we all uh, associate with London. No, definitely not. So thank you so much for being my guest today. Um, I just wondered if we could start off with, for people listening, for you to just give a little bit of background about yourself and what you do, which I know is quite a long question because you've got a lot yeah. going on in your life, but just a little synopsis. I'll just do the overview, the blog on the back of the book. (laughs) So I would say that the interesting bit starts when I get to England. So basically just a regular little girl from Sydney, home and away, beach, beautiful, sunny, very normal family, very similar to, you know, it's just that typical Australian lifestyle. And I was an actress wanting to really you know, run away to Hollywood or have this really amazing kind of acting experience. And although I had it here, it didn't really move in the direction I wanted, had a big old breakup. And then I was on the let's plane to London. During this kind of like Australia, I never felt, never fit in, didn't feel like it was my home. I always felt that there was this massive pulling to something else. And when I arrived in London, I very quickly made it over to East London and instantly felt that that was where I was meant to be, the culture, eclectic, so electric and addictive and amazing, like this colourful, accepting, fun, uh, 24-hour city who I instantly clicked with and you know I absolutely fell in love with London and it was a very strong love affair and I started, I did an accidental door shift at at a nightclub which I think most people who've read The Border from London, you'll know what it's actually called, but it's called 666 in the book. And I did a door shift as a door hall, uh, as it's used to be called. And that was it. I was I was hooked and ended up doing, kind of starting in Coimo a little bit. Accidentally, it all just fell into this happy accident. And I kind of fell down this rabbit hole and started promoting, doing parties, working for the owner, DJing, um, booking bands. So I kind of had this knack of booking people before they'd kind of got record deals or they're up and coming at the time. So people like Paloma Faith and Florence and the Machine were, you know, playing gigs for me when they were like 10 people in the room. So I had this knack of kind of picking and building these really cool club nights and underground army of creatives who were doing all these amazing things and everyone was at the same time and same place of they were you know they were DJing in a band promoters photographers makeup artists or film director wannabes it was everyone was creative and they were all in this huge melting pot where you could do anything you wanted you could be anyone you wanted you could try out anything you could experiment with anything and there were very little consequences for any of it so I embraced the culture 2001% and met amazing friends um, and fell in this little clique of really fun people who I kind of felt like I'd found people who were really similar looking for like always fun but it was never it was often like dark and crazy and 24-hour party life but it was all these genuine friendships that you wouldn't imagine in this 
unusual community, but they were like some of the best friends I've ever made to this day. But it kind of then turned into this, I was good at what I did. And I kind of had these ridiculous brass balls and thought, well, why don't I do this myself? And I kind of had this idea of what I wanted to do. I wanted to make this amazing nightclub of my own and fill it with all these amazing ideas and people. And I don't know how it happened to this day. And when I was writing the book, I was like, what are you doing, you idiot? You have no idea of what you're stepping into. But I um, worked with a business partner and this side of it, and we kind of got finance and we begged, borrowed, stole, maxed out credit cards, sold this, sold that, and opened the bathhouse, which was this pulsating venue. It was in a an old Turkish bathhouse, so Victorian bathhouse and you went down these incredible spiral stairs and it opened out to this old working bathhouse it was all tiled there was like well we did it in like this kind of macabre decor and you know it feels a little bit now like Hendrix has done it a million times over but it was really kitsch and unusual and fun and it was really a zero fucks given place everyone did what they wanted you know they were who they were their best versions of themselves, who they wanted to be. And this magical place came out and that was it. And then I rolled out three more or two more, sorry, um, and a, and a festival pop-up bar. So that's, that's pretty much it. And well, it's not pretty much it, but that's a recap. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an absolutely amazing story. And, uh, last year your book came out, didn't it? Um, the Queen of Clubs, yes. which basically says, everything that you just said but in much more detail and <laughs> it will yeah I mean we could do a whole interview on everything like probably a two-day interview of everything in that book but what was your kind of inspiration for writing it and kind of what led you to writing the book? It's really funny because I'm actually a supremely private person. I stepped away from England and came back here um, after some devastating experience and a devastating experience which I can tell you about later but I stepped back into Australia with nothing and except for my incredible husband and my beautiful daughter and I came back here and I was just a re- I was a regular person in a regular life with starting again from zero and with the identity that I created for myself over these kind of 13 years, it was was all gone and I didn't know where do I start and what I tried to do was just be normal, just a regular lady. I call myself girl but I'm like in my 40s now so I can't do that. But just a regular person and me and Rich just tried to fit back in and Australia is very, very, very toned down. It's all like beautiful beige and white and everyone's perfect and they aspire to this, you know, this kind of like – it's a very different lifestyle and it's very based on aesthetics and looks and what you've got and who you are. And we, we just didn't, didn't work. And, but I was expecting myself to be okay, get a job, you'll be okay. And I actually wasn't okay. And I had this urge that I realised that what I'd just been through the last 13 years, this thing wasn't a normal life. It was normal to me and Rich because it was our life, but it was actually – pretty unusual and like without being both it was exceptional it was in a very unusual journey and I felt like there was something nagging at me because I, I just couldn't I couldn't get past this and um so I started writing although I had no idea what I was going to write I told Rich when we went to Bali I bought all these books to make like maybe a cocktail book or this kind of thing and he was like fuck's sake can you just let this go and just get a normal job and um I thought well you know I'm gonna I'm gonna write a book and I'm dyslexic as well like really really badly dyslexic like my emails are bad everything's bad like I try really hard now I've got Grammarly and but it was just it was almost like a joke that I was going to write this book and I noted down a few ideas and we kind of thought well I'll just show them to some people in the publishing world and people were interesting but they were just like light and frothy club stories and they said that it needed like like, almost like blog pieces and one of the agents said it needs overarching narrative so then I put in two elements of the book which I actually think are the most beautiful and the most amazing because it started me on this on this journey that unraveled two things which was I fed in my love affair with Rich so wound through 
our love affair because I also didn't realize how special that was, but I did, but I didn't realize how much that would add to the tapestry of the stories. And then I wrote about my very secret hobby slash life slash addiction. So that's always been super private. And so I started writing it through and I got to, and these stories just came out, I banged them out, banged them out, banged them out. And I gave a few to Rich and he was like, this is actually really good. And he's like, I was there and he goes, I'm gripped and reading it. And he was like, keep writing. And I kept writing and I kept writing. And during this point in time, I would say three quarters of the way through the book, maybe even half, I was in one of my worst phases of um, alcohol addiction where I was doing some really dangerous things and I turned around and realized that I have an alcohol addiction. I thought I was okay but I knew that I definitely wasn't and that was the reason that my book kind of, I was ready to end it at that beautiful happy ending writing the book but then I realized that it wouldn't be fair to the people who read this story, because I've got this huge hatred for the internet and Instagram and how it shows this, you know, you look at us, we're a beautiful, happy family and, you know, we're going on holidays to Ibiza and my husband's really cool and my daughter's beautiful and funny, but realistically I'm, you know, naked in hallways. So it was this insane journey and when I wrote The End, it was finished. My addiction was finished my longing for the story to be out was finished and the journey began appealing as much as like the story is fabulous and fascinating it does have obviously the strong addiction thread kind of keeping it all together throughout the whole book for you do you think you've ever had a healthy relationship with drugs and alcohol no Never. I believe that I have this feeling, and I can say it now, it was almost like I was born with a broken heart. I was um, always felt different, always felt out of place, like I didn't fit in my own body, like everyone else knew what they were doing and I didn't. I couldn't, I felt like I didn't get the manual, like how does everyone else know what to do and how to feel and what to say. And I had really dark feelings as a child and this is like funny because I don't really talk about this, but I'm happy to share. But I had the normal experience. I can remember you talking about it when when I listened to one of your podcasts. It's like, you know, that kind of people get, you know, the WK, like all those kind of alcohol pops and stuff. And I remember drinking. My first drink was um, with girlfriends drinking Passion Pop and I just laughed, right? And I just laughed and thought it was so funny. And then every other time I got drunk, I would be like blackout drunk. And then I kind of, as a, you know, that kind of teen years and then I stopped drinking for a long period of time because I was acting and they had that really healthy actress lifestyle because I was very I was really committed to it but I wasn't happy when I was doing that when I was kind of being healthy and and as soon as I hit shortage in London um people drink all the time people do coke all the time they do MDMA all the time and I fell into this thing and instantly I was in I felt better I felt myself I felt quiet calm and I didn't feel like I didn't know what I was doing anymore I didn't know what I was I knew what I was feeling and it settled me and it made me feel I was still creative I was still turning up for work I was still doing all these really fun things you know I was an absolute flake if you wanted to meet up with me before two o'clock in the afternoon but then I always could handle it for the first 10 years Uh, I had a break when I had dot Uh, my little girl Dottie in the middle so I didn't drink I was really happy not to drink and then later when she was older because Rich was the looked after her while I was working and I started drinking again so my journey to sobriety has been going on for 10 years Um, I've been trying to stop drinking and doing coke for 10 years and it's exhausting so I feel like my affiliation to these two substances sparked the moment I got in Mm -hmm. and at the at its worst what did your drug and alcohol addiction look like so impressive um so much so I told a therapist and she was just like wow your 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 commitment is out you know an achievement so my addictions looked like really different things my addiction during 
are like kind of those shortage Hackney Sunday days were like properly cliche party all night party all day it was like nothing affected that the come downs and hangovers were really bad but you kind of like laughed through it with a few breakfast beers or a bottle of you know prosecco and mimosas and there was zero responsibility so a two-day bender wasn't really a problem because I didn't have to be anywhere like when I clocked off from my last shift when I worked in the club in shortage it would be like obviously you know there's drinking pills and this and that and there's after party after the after party and everyone's back and you know, days when, and then it just continued. And at its worst, it was, you know, um, doing gear that was black, that had been stained, that was like even a dealer's rejects, you know. And I went in and puked it up and then came back and did more. And that was like a, you know, really trash bag party girl. But then as it progressed through Bathhouse and when I had more money, it was just shinier and prettier and in better places and better wine and you know top shelf this and top shelf that and better gear and it kind of like it just developed as I grew up and my budget got bigger and I realized there's a point um, in the story where I realized that I'm actually a hundred percent addicted to both cocaine and both alcohol and I couldn't function without I couldn't leave the house without it so Rich was very much like we need to sort this out and I kind of went through steps of getting help and it just you know I worked in a nightclub I owned a nightclub it goes hand in hand and then the polar opposite is drinking uh, my most recent drinking which is a mum there's wine with everything there's prosecco at birthday parties it's acceptable to drink negronis when you know people are having a garden party, kids are running around, big, long, boozy lunches. It's alcohol. And I was going through a lot of stress during the time and something snapped and I started blackout drinking. You know, at my worst, I was naked in a hallway trying to bash into my neighbor's house who I don't even know. And to this day, I have to still see him. And, you know, there's lots of stories like that that are devastating and you would think that all of these times that I would have stopped and I didn't and there was so many stories like that and it got to the point where unfortunately um, it was affecting my next day as a parent and Richard had enough and my little lady didn't deserve to have a hungover mum and usually I hit it really well uh, and would kind of breeze through the day and, you know, she wasn't at school yet so there wasn't a big pressure to get ready in the morning or, you know, she was pretty pretty chilled and and it got to the point I was like, this is it, you know, this, she's, you know, getting me a sick bucket and wiping down my brow. It's That was for me was rock bottom and it was, you know, not anywhere near my big spectacular, you know, drink stories but it was... My little, my heart broke because I could see what the future looked like for her and what she was the age where, you know, to this day she doesn't really know but she does know that alcohol is really bad and she's really pleased that I don't drink. But, you know, poor Rich gets it because he occasionally drinks and she's like, how many beers are you having? Where are you going? What are you doing? How many, what time are you going to come back? And she's like, you can have three. She's seven, you know, like so she's negotiating and, Paul Rich is, you know, he's brilliant now. Unfortunately, I had that real addiction and he didn't. He could just let stop everything. So, and he did. When I took my first day of sobriety, he didn't drink for three months. And now he has a couple of beers occasionally and it's no problem. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, what timelines are we looking at? You were um, 25 when you moved to London. And then I gave my extensive drinking career um, another... 15 years of my life. This week, actually, I'm two years sober, so which is super exciting. Yeah, it's a funny one because my it was actually really difficult to, to go sober. Um, the decision was easy, but the actual rollout as such was really tricky. I went through, went to my GP and I just broke down and said, I can't do this anymore. And um, she's in Australia. Yeah. And I explained to her everything that's going on. I was blackout drinking like really badly and doing really dangerous things and I was in a really dark place. Um, and I knew each weekend it was coming but it still came. And I, each, each week I just really dreaded. I was like working as a creative director doing really amazing things and 
working day and night, taking on more projects, you know, making all this money and then perfect wife, perfect mom. Then the weekend come, I'll just blackout drink. And that would be when Stott was in bed. I just couldn't stop. I couldn't stop and I just knew that something was dangerous going to happen and I was in I was in pieces I didn't sleep I was sick all the time um I was in a really bad place and so a lot of people don't go down this kind of route and it's definitely not for everyone but it was for me because this was my line in the sand um I'd been trying to quit myself through kind of like more motivational abstinence kind of like mind over matter and it just I just couldn't get myself there I was it was a physical need um so I went through a supervised detox so I did it at home I didn't do I had the option to do it as an outpatient which I did and um had the option to have Valium to help and I decided not to do that um I kind of felt like I deserved to hurt and then I actually started on anti-drinking medication. So I went on um, Camperol and I'm not sure what it might be called in the UK and um, I started taking that um, like three times a day and then I went to therapy multiple times a week and it, like, it worked. It, it became something that was I'll never go back. I'll never take another sip of alcohol and that was a promise I made to myself but for my daughter. So I was really lucky to have a strong non-negotiable, like it was never going to happen again. And through this therapy, I started unraveling all these things and all these traumas and post-traumatic stress. And I was holding on to all of it. And I was drinking because I was so unhappy. I was miserable. There was a lot of family, a lot of bullshit going on. And it made me uncomfortable because I'd lived this life with Rich and Dorothy in England and Brighton. And it was simple. And it was like, really nice and although the, all this stuff was going on outside us with work I felt safe and secure at home so it didn't although I'd have some drinks there and it wasn't out of control like it got when I was here and I was sober for I'd say a year and four months and sadly I still felt really bad I was waiting for that kind of like everyone talks about this mellow sunshine like really exciting freeing feeling and I knew I was free of the alcohol and I was about three and a half months in. I was okay. I wasn't going to drink and it wasn't that was playing my mind. I wasn't well and I did everything from fasting, Chinese medicine, acupuncture, uh, keto, and then like kind of went vegan. I am still am. I deserved to feel better. I was exercising. But I went through periods of feeling really, really, really low, really, really unwell. I would say um, there were times when I felt so bad. I, I functioned, but then there were other times when I was doing all this unheard of amounts of creative work, like through the night taking on another job. So I was like bang, 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 happy, inspired, enthusiastic. And then other times I just I couldn't even get the motivation to maybe wash my hair or, you know, have a shower that day. Um, I always did what I had to do and I just couldn't work this out and I kept on going to the doctor and one guy, and every time I was ill, I picked up a lot of flus and I sat there and the doctor who kind of like took over from my doctor who started me on the sober journey. He was meant to be an expert in sobriety and I sat there and I was crying and I said, I've got the flu. And it's making me feel suicidal. I can't, I can't shake it. And he said, well, you know, flu season can be tough and you're a mum, you're a working mum, so mums are tired. So, you know, give yourself a break. That's all it is. I saw another doctor and another one. And it wasn't till Dot, who is gifted, she's like in the top 2% of like human brain. She's in Mensa. So really incredible human, but she's got a couple of things going on. And we went to the pediatrician and they said, they explained that she had uh, inattentive ADHD. And they explained what this meant. And I said, well, then they wanted to give her medication really quickly. And I said, why would you, you know, can we go through different therapies? And they said, no, what happens is a child, because she's so smart, what happens with children who don't get medicated, they are really clever and they breeze through school. They get anxious, they worry well beyond their years. They then, because they're so clever, they get through school without any, you know, too much problem, too many problems and they get to a point where they can't bluff it, they can't mask it anymore. So they often dr- drop out of school 
they fall in bad crowds, they do drink, drugs, often have addiction, and then they're often suicidal. And as we sat there, Rich just looked at me and the doctor kind of did these notes and he's like, you've literally just mapped out Taylor's life. So the doc- she sent me to a psychiatrist who diagnosed me with ADHD and bipolar 2. So these were two, these are two mental illnesses that are self-medicated by drug and alcohol. So this was a huge, this is also a big news, so I don't talk about it, but this is something that has re-inspired my thirst for knowledge to understand this link between, I know that a lot of people have anxiety around drinking and not drinking and the drinking causes anxiety and then they drink to relieve it, but this was a different this was a different feeling. It was the drive of the ADHD makes you want to feel that hole that you can't get because you can't create your own dopamine and serotonin. So you're constantly needing that fix to make yourself feel better. And then the bipolar, because it's so up and down, you need alcohol and cocaine to med- medicate it. So I've been doing that my whole life. And although it was really devastating, it was actually freeing um, because the doctor said, by finding this now, the rest of your 40 years will be a totally different life. And that gave me this amazing sense of freedom that I was hoping that sobriety was going to give me. But I've now got this relief and I'm interested now in what does this look like and what does this mean? Because I think so many people fight against it with, you know, a lot of people are in AA and that's obviously everyone's sober journey is so different and I respect everyone is how they get there and what works for them. But that kind of like showing up every day, but what if you turn up every day and you don't feel good still? What do you keep doing if you can't control your mind? What if you're actually ill? And I think for me, although it's you know, it's, it's not embarrassing, but it's something that is deeply private, but it maybe it shouldn't be. So sobriety really did highlight the kind of underlining mental health issues that yeah. had you not gone sober, actually, you, you probably would have masked and been escaping from for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Um, it was self-medicating. And surprisingly, um, I don't think this is, I'm not saying it's super common, but I think there's a lot of people now, um, I help a lot of other people going, not in like a professional way, but it just seems to happen that I think a lot of people are struggling out there with alcohol abuse. And it's not like, I think a lot of people realize it gets out of control and very quickly, like it slowly creeps up. And so I've kind of helped a lot of people because I think people were shocked when they read the book. And people are more shocked about the fact that I'm sober <laughs> because of the, you know, my, my history. One of the best things about the book is that I've had people emailing me, messaging me, telling me, calling me about like, how much the book means to them. And thank you for the honesty and how they can really relate. You know, no one, not many people have a naked hallway story, but that's special. <laughs> but a lot of people are struggling and a lot of people are trapped so if nothing else I love getting those emails that are kind of saying you know I gave one yesterday I really need to um, read this book or all these different things and I feel like that's something that's a really special thing because I believe like when I was writing it I was like this won't be any good if I'm not totally brutal not not any good it's not true and I think the world needs more truth and they need to hide, stop hiding behind this really perfect facade of like what is expected and what is socially demanding because I think people are trapped in this perfect perception of what life needs to look like and it's fucking ugly and it's dark and it's messy and people hide this behind Instagram filters and squares and, you know, I hid it from my family, my family read the book the same time as everyone else they, I made them they ordered it off Amazon I didn't even give them copies because I hid it and I also didn't feel that any way shape or form they were supportive I tried to talk to them a few times and was shut down and it was kind of one of the time it was joked off when I said oh I have a drinking problem and one person in my family said well you've got many problems or is that the least of your problems um, sat down to speak to another and told them about the medicated 
route I decided to take and it was just glazed over. And my mum read the book when the bipolar diagnosis came and I said, this is what has triggered it off. Coming back to Sydney triggered it. I was, I was in control when I was able to drink and get this rush from working at night and all these amazing people. And I created this bubble of okay and uh, this world with Rich and myself and, you know, we created this, this environment where I was okay. I had terrible shaking come downs continuously that I think he wanted to leave me over many times, but not really. But he had to go through that. And I think when I came here, I didn't feel supported or understood or anyone even wanted to try. And they, no one knew me. No one had been known this little life that I'd made for myself. And then so they got to read about it in the book. And what was their reaction once they read about it? Do you think they were more understanding? Uh, yes and no. I think my mum read it uh, when the, the diagnosis came in. She was devastated at all the different things that went on what that were awful but she's also like immensely proud oh she was always proud because she came to the club she helped me open them like she'd come over with a little backpack you know a little bag and stay on my couch you know so she knew what bathhouse was and it was this spectacular creation that she was really proud of and she supported me um so she saw a peek into this life and she met rich really early on and he was this crazy gorgeous charismatic creature and we were besotted in each other so she saw what this romance began on so she knows she knows the good and I've controlled the bad and she read it and she wept and wept and wept um and she even read it on her iPhone because we didn't have a copy at the time and I said to her it's time to read the book she didn't talk she I knew she had it and she hadn't mentioned it in three days I was like are you kidding me like and she said, oh, it's, too, it's very difficult to read. Uh, and then she got through it and she just hugged me and she cried and said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to cry. She said, she's so proud of me. And oh, I'm getting emotional. But it's, and then other parts of my family have read it and said they found it confronting and haven't discussed it ever more. Um, and they're people who are close to me. And they just put it down to me being ill and unwell. And really, it was a journey. So it's very mixed, like, you know, Rich still picks a book up and he's amazingly proud. Yeah, he's immensely proud as well. And it was because it's our life. It's not just my journey, it's his as well. And I kind of, he was very wary at first until he started reading all the manuscript because he really helped to move with a lot of it. And he was like, this is something, this is bigger than our story. It's this, it's a piece of work by the end of it. It wasn't ours. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, it is your story. Like, it is your healing. And it is, you know, out there now for other people to read and to be helped by it which I think is like the most important thing and especially when it comes to mental health and alcohol I think there is such a strong link in the first place for why people drink and then when they are drinking the mental health um, implication that then has and then when we all go sober I say oh not everyone in the world is sober (laughs) lots are are, which is a good thing yeah Yeah. but you know sobriety is almost like the fixer in a way oh you've gotten sober so everything's okay now but actually that's not the case for a lot of people and and I do find that with a lot of people that I speak to through sober and social that's a bit like you know some people do have that story with the pink cloud everything's amazing and everything is better and and I think you know in on the whole everything is better yeah but it really does shine mental health to you like with a bright beaming torch yeah and I think a lot of people don't know that that's right um and I just want people to like realize that like if they have gone sober and you're still not feeling a hundred percent like it's okay like sobriety isn't and doesn't necessarily give you a shiny sunshine life but it does allow you to really start working on yourself and to actually figure out how you can move forward and cope with healthy coping mechanisms yeah. that alcohol and drugs kind of took away absolutely it's a starting base that's how you build your new life mm. and you can it's not shifting sands of you know that when I used to drink I'd be like oh I don't know if I'm going to get that be able to get that work done because I can never guarantee what state I'm going to be in mm-hmm. And now it's like, I know I'm going to get this done because I can get up, show up, smash things out. And that's my given. It's a given now that I'm going to be able to do this. It's a given now I turn up for this. It's a given now I am a better version of myself. Mm -hmm. 
So when you took the medication to go sober, yeah, drinking medication, how long were you on it for? I went on it for um, four months. They recommend there's three. There's a few different types you can take, and I took the one where you have to decide whether you want to drink or get drink again or not. There's a couple. There's one that allows you to reduce your drinking, and I think maybe have a couple of drinks, and they and that kind of programs your brain for that to be it. But I was like, made that decision that I was. I verbalized that I never want to drink again. And that was my commitment to my daughter and also to my husband. I put him through too much, but mostly to myself. I just couldn't do it anymore. And I was in too much pain to continue. Um, so I took the medication and I would say it probably started making life easier maybe one or two weeks in. But I was on that high of like, that first sober moment, once I got over over the feeling shit on the detox, um, which was a bit of a struggle for me because um, I was shaky, I couldn't think, uh, sweating, very emotional. I was like, I compare it to like a lovely sea sponge and they're f- and I felt like I was full of water and any time anyone came to me, it was like pressing and all this water just oozed out. Like a f- and I just cried and I cried and I cried and then I felt better like two weeks later and then I think the medication was – able to set me on my way it cleared the path to go this is what you can do and this is how you do it and it got me to the point where I remember in therapy we started talking about stuff and I was like I never called myself that kind of like hi I'm Tabor and I'm I'm an alcoholic and I never said it out loud I never said to people oh I'm an alcoholic or I didn't label myself with that because in my heart I knew I wasn't I, I knew that I had an alcohol addiction and I had in the past a drug addiction but in my heart, I knew that it was something bigger. It, what, it didn't just stop there. It was kind of like it was the, the beginning of working out what actually was wrong. And you talk about rich yes. a lot in this, <laughs> in this journey. Yeah. And in, in your book specifically, you do talk about finding a Hollywood fucking amazing love. <laughs> I, get goose, I just got goosebumps when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> And before you met Rich, how old were you when you met Rich? I met Rich when I was 29. Okay. And before you met him, what was your romantic life like? None, zero. Um, I never had a romantic life. I obviously had, I call them pretty boys in the book. There's lots of, you know, boys about. I never had a romantic relationship past not even it wasn't I wouldn't even call it dating I would just say it's a part of that kind of Hackney lifestyle which is was wild and everyone hooked up which was all down to drugs and alcohol and then it never really went past that maybe you know once or twice whatever but my romance was with my friends we didn't care about boys to the point it was like yeah everyone kind of but I had this intense connection to my group of friends and that was the most important thing but I think the biggest impact that alcohol has had on a relationship or you know dating was with rich um we literally drank from our first day together till you know we all we've had a really amazing life and we've done these really cool fun things and they all revolve at different points around alcohol always alcohol and then coke and then that stopped when dot was born and our relationship was scaffolded born from built around the future was built into alcohol. We were, we were a couple who drank together and there was a huge question mark. You know, we'd be, we've been together now for I think like 12 years. Um, we got married in Vegas just recently or like two or three years ago um, and it's just this kind of relationship that we both wondered what would happen if I went sober what would our relationship look like and would it survive and you know and the testament to what an amazing man he is he knew that for our family that it was the right thing to do and that he would support me in any which way I needed and for me that was not to be around alcohol and he said he didn't drink for like the first three months and when I hit that mark I could go to a pub have a meal he would have a couple of beers and he didn't really drink at home. He'd have like a couple of drinks. We we don't socialize a lot because we just kind of hang out at home. But 
it, my relationship, quite, like, I think it, it, it was worrying. Um, but, and I asked him this question earlier when, you know, I was thinking, we were thinking about what does it look like? And it's better than ever. I would say it was the best thing that I ever did. It was the best thing I ever did for our relationship. And it's absolutely, like, it's also uplifted his relationship with drinking, which is that we're better off without it um, in my life, absolutely. And then that pulls up our family unit because I think there's this triangle of the three of us and we all need each other but we all need each other to be well and happy um and we all help each other so he committed to that and to this day we're still grateful yeah I mean it comes up a lot relationships and being sober and what Mm. you know what does that look like if one of you decides to stop drinking and you know ultimately I think it comes down to the support of the other person yeah I don't think relationships can survive if the other person continues the same lifestyle and one person's gone sober, yeah. it has to be a team decision in a way, whether yeah. or not they're going to go sober for, you know, a while. But I do think it needs to be a team effort, yeah. both sober together until maybe you can reintroduce it in a healthy manner for the other person. Yeah. But if you don't have that, I think relationships can very easily crumble. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that you are getting to know each other again. Yeah, it was a funny. It was funny because it was we went away um, during the detox, and it was just it, we went and stayed in a holiday house, um, like an Airbnb, and it just reiterated that it was the right thing to do. And you know, and then we enjoy, we like, we laugh, we're happy. There's that pressure is taken away of my hangovers, the drinking, um, and it's just this fresh start. And I would say our relationship hasn't been better. And what? This is going back to your career slightly, but what was the highest point of your career for you? Career-wise, I would say absolutely positively the Bath House, which, um, you know, there was a moment when, like, Rich was DJing and this beautiful full club and it was a real pulsating part of the London scene and just before it kind of became overblown in all the magazine papers of where to go, what to do, we had this underground movement that was electric and that I would say definitely is a highlight of my career okay and what was the lowest point of the career I would definitely say the day um we we would decided to sell our club in Brighton and um Dottie was two and a half years old and uh we decided to move out to a spec to Australia and um we pretty much signed sealed delivered the sale of the club and we had a letter through the door that said that wasn't going to happen. The venue was being taken away from us and every penny I'd ever earned was gone. It's a very complicated story and I kind of break it down in the book, but everything I've ever worked for was being taken away from me. Every every bit of money that like Rich put into the business, it was all gone. So it meant that was when I went to Sydney, I was starting again, and I literally felt lightning bolt through my heart that my life was over from that day because our transition from this club land to normality was taken away, our safety net of money and future plans and everything we had, we'd put everything into this business. We didn't buy houses. We didn't kind of take huge wages. You know, we, we, this was our kind of nest egg and our get out and it was gone, taken away. And that was the worst thing that could ever happen but you have built everything back up again now yeah and it's built on solid ground this time where club life feels like it's just shifting sand are you going to be closed down by the police is someone going to od Mm. is my club being taken all my customers being taken by away by a rival down the street it's a very exhausting industry and a lot of the places have been quite wild in that they're unregulated in it's not, it's not, I'm not, I haven't had the safety net of a big corporation or a conglomerate of club, club owners behind me. We did it with our own money. It was, there was no investors. There was no huge startup capital. There was never any money and safety net or there's no plan B ever. And that's why it was so exhausting because I was constantly on a knife edge. Mm. Who was the most famous person you had in your nightclub? Everyone loves this story. Prince Harry. And he was the most regular customer we ever had polite, kind, paid the bill, ordered tequila shots for the staff, um, came in with some like secret service people with massive guns. It was very, 
it was a very funny moment for the club because I think a lot of people defined us, defined us as that after that happened as this kind of like West London, you know, shiny, glitzy club. But actually it was like really underground and we had this really colourful club night called Caligi there and it was it was like this sexually elastic, like non-binary. It was a crazy crowd. So I think people are looking for that kind of polished. On one of the nights they came down for this polished party venue and cocktail bar but it was actually really insane late night late night club <laughs> and then Bjork was a favorite um and Vivian Westwood um Kira Knightley lots of oh Bill Murray I would say is definitely one of the favorites yeah it's absolutely incredible the names that you pulled down into your nightclub <laughs> um when yeah. you look back what do you think is your most like wildest oh my God, I actually can't believe that that happened to me moment. I would say probably meeting Rich. That's my biggest, oh, like that's my biggest life-changing moment. And it was, I kind of had these premonitions that I was looking for him all my life. And then he came and he was actually like, you meet a lot of people and you think they're going to be this amazing person and you get to know them after you can you can gauge it within like an hour of talking to them and he was a real thing he was genuine and you know it was hypnotic and he was um very engaging and that was my that's the best moment of my life apart from Dorothy which again is incredible well congratulations firstly on two years over because that is such an amazing achievement thank you if anyone is listening what advice would you give them about sobriety um Go to your GP, I think is a really good place to start. I think just even if the medical route's not for you, but I think it's a really good idea to have a baseline of blood tests, health, and kind of start on that. Where where are we starting that journey? Um, and I think looking after your I know everyone talks about mental health, but I think, you know, if if you need to see someone with a psychologist or a therapist, start unpacking that stuff because it's easier to know what are you dealing with and start dealing with it. Mm. I think podcasts like yours are really great and I've actually recommended it to a few people because I think seeing a variety of different journeys and different people and how it looks because my journey is not the same as yours. It's not the same as, you know, fat journeys. It's different to everyone's. And a lot of people look at my story and they're like, oh, I'm, I'm definitely not that bad. But I think daytime drinking from 12 is bad. Do you know what I mean? So everyone's got this really unusual, almost like they've got an instant, they categorize of what's good, bad. Um, so I think listening and learning, but also knowing that it's not perfect. It's actually really hard. And then my other advice is a really good book that's not at all popular <laughs> um, is Alan Carr's Quit Drinking for Women. That was a life changer for me. Um, I'd read lots of other books and I guess maybe they, I didn't connect to the, the positivity, um, which sounds a bit morbid, but it didn't have, I didn't connect with that. I felt like I loved the facts and I really liked learning how does the brain work and how does your body work and react to the alcohol and what are you looking for and uh, and I think it was a really good way of how um, how it's worked out and it worked for me. Now I give it to people, some of them don't like it uh, and some of the people find it really useful. So that's my tip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think probably just like, you know, everyone's alcohol journey is, you know, different individual yeah. messy not linear it's kind of the same as people's sobriety journey really for sure so it is just listening and figuring out what works for you but um yeah that's really good advice thank you so much and it's so good to hear it from a different perspective as well I really like appreciate that and that's why I love doing these podcasts actually because each yeah. single person has like a different, a different thing that they do that hopefully can help someone that's listening absolutely 2021 what does mm. this year hold for you a lovely, we're making, moving into a different location. So that's really exciting from a family point of view. I have, a, I have two big plans. One of the biggest requests I have is turning Queen of Clubs into a Netflix series. So um, I have lots of people kind of saying, when's that happening? I've had a couple of people, industry people kind of express interest, but it's really, I need to kind of start looking at that and talking to people this year. But I have like... I have a good feeling that it's that one of those things that just kind of translates. It's really visual. So that's what I'm kind of looking at and hoping to explore. And then uh, I also have sitting in a scrappy book and my, my kind of notes is a, 
another book. A lot of people want to know what happens after. Uh, and I've kind of shared a lot of the stuff now. And I, I've written a book about addiction and I needed to wait and see what the other side of addiction looks like for me when I realized that my sobriety wasn't, it wasn't a cut and dry now we're done. It was, I'm so interested in, um, I'm learning more about mental illness and addiction and what does that look like? So I'm kind of thinking about continue working on this book, but I really value my marriage and Rich and I self-published Queen of Clubs. So everything from, he did the design, we had you know, a lawyer, PR, um, it was a huge slog because um, I had a few agents that didn't believe in it. Um, and they were like, no, it's not going to work. And it did work and it does work. So I think for the second book, I don't think we've got it in us to self-publish again. So hopefully I'll be able to find an agent or publisher who will help us with that. Um, so that's my that's my plans. That's amazing. A Netflix series would be so good. <laughs> yeah, I think that's definitely going to happen. Okay, fingers crossed. <laughs> I'm keeping everything crossed for you. Thank you. Um, I'm going to move us into the quickfire round, which I do with every guest. Okay. Um, are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Apart from your own nightclubs, what is the best nightclub you've ever been to? Okay. Um, it's really hard when you own a nightclub, so everything else is, you know, uh, kind of falls short. But my favourite nightclub is Dottie's Disco. Um, so I don't know if people, like, obviously haven't read the book, My Daughter's Dottie and she's seven, and she was born with this kind of party gene. She wants to DJ already. So she for New Year's Eve, she put on this amazing New Year's Eve party and had, like, glow sticks and red cups and sparklers, conga, and puts on Rich's Queen of Club soundtrack and so creates this little party and... Um, it couldn't be better. Okay, amazing. Um, your life mantra? Uh, never give up. And your best thing about sobriety? Increased brain capacity. I'm loving this. I feel like I'm smarter, much, much, much smarter. So I really like that it's unlocked and allowed me to do all these, really think a different way is what I'm really loving about it. Amazing. Thank you so much for being such an amazing and beautiful guest on Sober Sip. Aww. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tava, for taking us on your incredible journey. If you want to follow more of her story, please do so on at Tava O'Halloran. Thank you once again to our amazing and delicious sponsors at Kalenio for sponsoring this episode. And I can't wait to see you all back here next week for another Sober Sip. Mm-hmm.